Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome to this week's Nature Podcast. In the show, we're taking a look at how to write software for quantum computers. Plus the uncertain future of Asia's mountain glaciers. This is The Nature Podcast for September the 14th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. A computer is a pretty handy device, but the processor itself would be useless without software, sets of instructions and information that tell a computer how to operate. For the first computers, that meant physically moving dials and cables. But now, software consists of computer programs, written in code, that allow us to do everything from analysing black hole data to posting on Facebook. But computer hardware is developing too. Physicists are starting to build working versions of a completely new kind of processor that's based on quantum physics. And this means we'll need a completely new kind of software. Reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to William Zeng from quantum computing firm Rigetti Computing about how to make useful software for the first quantum machines. He started by explaining what quantum computers are and why researchers are so keen to build them. Yeah, so the the basic idea is that all the computers that we've been working with for the last 80 years or so are all based on electronics. And actually the world is more complicated than that. There's physics underneath it that we've known about for 100 years called quantum mechanics. And so the idea is we're going to try and build technology, we're going to try and build computers that use this new kind of physics. And what kind of things might that be useful for then? What, what kind of calculations would we want that computer to do? There are two major areas of application for the world's first quantum computers. One is molecular modeling and simulation. So in this, uh, you use the quantum computer to help simulate uh, and design molecules that you might care about. Uh, the second is machine learning. Uh, and this comes from the fact that the, the correlations that occur in quantum systems are very, very subtle. And those are also the kind of correlations you might want to have in you know, very good machine learning models or optimization models. The general idea then is that they are both kinds of calculations which would just um, be impossible on a, on a regular classical computer or, or take an exorbitant amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, millions of years is the kind of runtime that you look at when you try and do it on a regular machine. And so we've talked a few times on the podcast about the hardware that lies beneath a quantum computer. And I know there are several different ways of doing that and it's progressing quite rapidly. But in your comment piece this week, you argue that there's 
there's also a need to get the quantum programming or quantum software right, or we'll end up with having these computers that actually nobody can even use. First of all, what do you really mean by software and programming in the quantum context? Broadly, we mean how you're going to make use of the device. So there's low-level control that still relates a little bit to the physics, and then there's higher-level control, which are sort of programming languages that people who don't know that it's you know, a physics device of a particular kind and just know that it's a computer they can program work with. And it's the software and the applications that are going to make the difference between having some very interesting experiments you know, for people with physics backgrounds like me and world-changing technology. And so the dream is just in the way that whilst I probably wouldn't be able to rewire my computer, I can definitely produce something on Microsoft Word. In the future, you might be able to have scientists who are using quantum computers without actually having to have this very, very in-depth knowledge of, of quantum computing itself. That's right. Yeah, that's where we want to get to. And we want to integrate it with you know their workflows. Uh, and to get there, we have to, we, we're in this first stage where we're, we're trying to develop a kind of a developer community and, and figure out what the building blocks are. But then, yeah, once you get to those eventual building blocks, we want it to be uh, something that you don't have to know it's a quantum computer, you just need to know it's faster. We've also realized that it's about how do I integrate quantum computers with regular computers. And quantum classical hybrid programming is that. So a quantum classical hybrid algorithm uh, has there's two kinds of quantum classical interaction that happen in, in, in one of these programs. And the first is you break up the problem so that you use the quantum computer for just the part of the problem that it's very good at. And you don't waste that precious quantum computing resource on stuff that a classical computer could just do fine. So, so that, that splitting of a problem is, is the first key bit of hybridization. But there's a second bit. And the second bit is that when you're running the, the part of the algorithm that's very good on the quantum computer, you actually use the classical processor to tune or calibrate the execution of the QPU, of the, of the quantum processor. You said you're a quantum programmer and you're clearly keen for there to be more quantum programmers. Where are they going to fr- come from? Do, do many exist at the moment or is it a very new kind of field? It's definitely new. Uh, but, you know, the chance to work at the beginning of a field, again, where there's not, you know, there's not a defined world-leading programming language yet. You know, we're still working on instruction sets. You know, you have the chance to be the person who invents the quantum version of C, and that's, that's really attractive to people who, who care about programming. And then the potential on the application side is really attractive to people who care about the applications. One of the, one of the fun, really, really fun things for me, and I've been talking about quantum computing to people for a very long time, is that you know, when they come and ask me, okay, well, how are you going to use a quantum computer? What is a quantum computer actually? And my answer for a long time had to be, oh, you know, go read these books or go learn this thing. And now I can say, go to this website and download this Python package, go to Forest and pip install our client libraries, and you can yourself see how quantum programming works and, and play with it. And that's extremely exciting, and it's made it you know, much easier to see the field grow, and I think it makes me extremely hopeful for, for what's to come. That was William Zeng talking to Lizzie Gibney. You can find William's comment piece online at nature.com forward slash news, and that's part of a special issue on quantum software if you want to know more about the subject. Stay tuned for the news, where we're looking at a move to boost representation in American universities. But now it's time for two snappy science summaries in this week's research highlights. Uneaten fish food could be adding to the rising tide of drug-resistant microbes. 
testing the microbes in food that's fed to fish in marine farms revealed around 130 genes that cause antibiotic resistance. Not all the fish meal gets munched by the fish. Some sinks to the ocean floor. Gene swapping between bacteria on the seabed means the genes could get into the food chain through contaminated seafood. This could pass drug resistance to bacteria that cause human diseases. Screening fish food for antibiotic resistance genes could help keep people safe. Read more in Environmental Science and Technology. Our galaxy is drifting around with a heavy heart. A supermassive black hole could be lurking near the centre of the Milky Way. For ages, astrophysicists have suspected that many galaxies harbour supermassive black holes at their cores. Now, a powerful telescope array in Chile has honed in on a suspicious cloud of gas in our own galaxy. It revealed radio waves coming from a point-like source in the middle of the cloud. This suggested a black hole 100,000 times heavier than the Sun. The team think it may have formed when the Milky Way gobbled up an unsuspecting dwarf galaxy. Turn your own telescopes to nature astronomy for more. When we talk about ice melting due to global warming, we tend to think about the Arctic or the Antarctic. But there's also huge amounts of ice at the top of mountains. In Asia, trillions of tonnes of ice sits on mountains. The annual melt of these glaciers provides a reliable source of water for people downstream. And a lot of people live downstream. Around one out of every five people in the world live in the river basins near Asia's high mountain glaciers. As the world warms, these glaciers will melt faster than they can be replenished. And geoscientist Philip Kreienbrink explains that they are already starting to shrink. There are some photos dating back from 1920 or so, and you see, for instance, the Kumbu Glacier, which is next to Mount Everest, that was 150, 200 metres thicker than it is uh, at the moment. So that's a considerable decrease. And this decrease in ice will only continue as the world continues to warm. Philip has been working out what these glaciers may look like in the future. I asked him how. What we did is uh, we modelled a lot of glaciers in the area. And it, it's, of course, very difficult because there are very little observations over there. But what we did, we used the climate models. Uh, so we used 110 climate models and we developed our own glacier model, which we apply to every glacier that is larger than 0.4 square kilometers. And we model every glacier individually, forcing it with all the climate data. So if the temperature rises, then, then there will be more glacier melt and the tongue of the glacier will retreat and get smaller. Now, a big thing we don't know about what will happen in the future is just how much the world is going to warm. In Paris, the world agreed to try to limit global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. What did you find the impact of this limit would be on the glaciers? So, yeah, we modelled with a lot of climate models and we're only six of the 110 that were in between 0.1 degrees of the 1.5 target. But we found that if we can limit the world's temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, we lose about 36% of ice still. So that still seems like quite a lot of ice to, to lose, even with this limit. Yeah, but even if we also did a, did a model run where we just keep the temperature stable at the current level, and then even we would, uh, we would lose 15% of the glacier area and 14% of the ice volume. 
How likely actually is it that we'll manage to keep the the world's warming to one and a half degrees? Well, I'd say that's not very likely. It's hard to pinpoint exactly uh, what kind of temperature rise we may expect because there are so many factors involved, uh, politics and how we behave uh, as just a general society. But I'd say it's highly unlikely that we'll get to, to the 1.5 degrees and maybe even the 2 degree targets. That's also, I think, already a very optimistic target. So if we don't manage to keep the world's warming under one and a half degrees or even under two two degrees, then what's going to happen to the glaciers? Well, a lot more ice will be lost. That's, that's just it. We have calculated also for, for the most extreme scenarios and in our most extreme scenario, uh, which is a more business as usual scenario, which will cause a, a temperature rise in high mountain Asia of about 6 degrees, which is considerably more than the 1.5 degrees globally. And then we would have a glacier uh, mass loss of about 65%. So in one scenario, it's about 65% of the ice is kept, and in the other, it's about 65% of the ice is lost. Yes, exactly. And you can imagine that that might be a very big difference to the to the meltwater in the rivers and to the mountain communities and to all kinds of other effects that may occur when this ice is gone. You've seen these glaciers. How how does it feel to imagine, I guess, sixty five percent of that amount of mass not being there anymore? Yeah, that would be would be quite a quite a difference. And they're, they're just big features of the of the of the of the landscape. And when they're not there, they're, they just leave these these holes uh, where yeah, which will be filled largely by by lakes and stuff. But it will be primarily a, an impact to the local people, like because if the glacier changes, there's a lot of changes to the to the local climate as well, because the the energy fluxes change, and and it will just impact the people in the mountains the most. And there's actually millions of people who would be directly affected in the mountains and further downstream. What kinds of impacts would this loss of glaciers have? Yeah, of course, these changes will be, will be the most important near the mountains because they're the, the contribution of the meltwater to the rivers and, and to, to the, the irrigation water for the farmers is, is the largest because the further you go downstream the rivers, the more precipitation is also of influence. But the people's lives will definitely be impacted uh, near the mountains. And yeah, for all kinds of reasons, for irrigation, drinking water. Uh, a lot of these countries still use the rivers for their sanitation, uh, hydropower. All these things are, are quite important to them. And they can change a lot if all the glaciers uh, disappear. That was Philip Kreinbrink, who's based at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Give his paper a read over at nature.com forward slash nature. Whether you're a long-term Nature Podcast listener or brand new to the show, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Svetlana Tamitigama got in touch to let us know she listens to the show while taking a jog through the local nature, which seems appropriate. To get in touch, send us an email to podcast at nature.com or a tweet at Nature Podcast. And if you'd like us to reach even more science-interested ears, a review or a rating on your favourite podcast provider really does make a huge difference. Time now for this week's news chat, and on the line all the way from San Francisco is nature reporter Amy Maxman. Hello, Amy. Hi. Now, this week uh, in nature, we've been looking at water in Jordan. Now, Jordan is a very dry country. Just how little water is there? 
The average amount of water per person in Jordan per year is less than 150 cubic meters. And that's, uh, for comparison, Americans have about 9,000 cubic meters. So Jordan has a 60th of the amount that it's av- that's available to a person in the United States. So that's the situation now. Is that likely to get worse with climate change? It's likely to get worse with climate change. Um, and there's a number of other issues that the country has. They take in a lot of refugees Uh, So their population tends to get larger and larger, and they also have a lot of old infrastructure, leaky pipes. So there's kind of a convergence of a lot of factors to make it an increasingly dangerous situation. When we describe it as an increasingly dangerous situation, what could it actually lead to, these water shortages? There has been warnings. The most recent one I found is there's a report from U.S. intelligence agencies that predicts that when you have water scarcity, Uh, And if it's coupled with poverty, social tension, say between ethnic groups um, and weak political institutions, that can lead to conflict. So, of course, we'd like to combat this water scarcity. What kind of approaches are being tried out in Jordan? So there's a number of different approaches, and a lot of them are supported uh, not only by the Jordanian government, but also the U.S. government. Uh, the UK government, Netherlands, uh, various places have projects um, in Jordan. Uh, For example, uh, in this last article I wrote about um, MIT engineers working with engineers in Jordan on this low-pressure drip irrigation system. Drip irrigation uh, secretes just a small amount of water to crops versus, say, sprinklers or something. So it uses a lot less water, only that requires more energy normally. So they're working on drip irrigation systems that use low pressure, so they require you know, half as much energy and could potentially be powered by solar. And those are kind of the new systems. Something I was really interested in is there's another project that's in the north of Jordan. It's really close to Syria in a place called Um el-Jamal. And this area has been occupied for a really long time. So starting around 90 AD, the Arabs that were there built these reservoirs with canals. So during the winter when there's rains, particularly when there was rains in Syria, which is right across the border, they'd, uh, the water would move through the canals and fill up these reservoirs. And so now there's a big project in that area to actually revive those old systems. In 2015, the Um Al Jamal had started this project, and so they repaired the largest of the reservoirs in the summer of 2015. It was it's holds as much water as four Olympic-sized swimming pools, and the mayor was so excited he just sort of recalled the night when it was pouring rain in November for the first time. You know, there, he stayed up all night just watching the canals fill with water and. Um, move into the reservoir. And when you were reporting on this story, did you actually get to see this reservoir for yourself? Yeah. So I saw the reservoir. And and for the archaeologist who was leading the effort, his point is sort of like, uh, also just sort of symbolic, saying like, you know, this was a system that wasn't, you know, this isn't like a cute project we have. There is a reason why this was maintained for uh 800 years. So that system, there was the Roman occupation, um, there was the Byzantine era, there was the Islamic era, and throughout all of those time periods, people maintain this system and continue to use it. So his point is, this is a symbol showing this isn't a kind of silly backward system. This is a system to use uh, 
runoff that we can now resurrect and we can rely on instead of just relying on deep wells that might be in danger soon. Now, the idea of all this old and new infrastructure isn't just to to boost the water supply in Jordan. It could be relevant to other countries as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, I talked to an official from the U.S. Agency for International Development, and his point was, uh, yes, you know, this is a matter of security, but also a lot of the technologies that are being tested and developed and piloted in Jordan can help us back here in the States, say in Arizona, where it's really dry. Uh, Jordan provides a really nice test bed because they have so many issues that I mentioned before. I mean, they're dealing with a really arid state. They're dealing with you know poor infrastructure. They're dealing with a lot of problems that occur elsewhere. So if something works there, the idea is that it could be applied elsewhere later. Let's move on to our second story, which also is uh, an example of something which was developed in one country and now being applied elsewhere. There was a British gender equality program set up called Athena Swan. Before we get to where it's spreading, what was actually the goal of Athena Swan? Well, the goal of Athena Swan was to increase gender equality in science. And it uh, began in 2005 in the UK, and it's been spreading. I think at this point now there's 140 UK institutions that are involved with it. And there have been uh, similar programs now set up in Australia and Ireland. But now also the U.S. is looking at adopting some version of this program itself. Yeah, the U.S. is interested in this program and they're also uh, hoping to kind of add on to it a similar sort of assessment that also doesn't just look at gender, but also looks at inclusiveness with regards to race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability, socioeconomic class and other indicators from marginalized groups. It seems like in the UK it's been lauded as quite a successful program. Do, do we have a sense for why it was able to achieve quite good success in increasing equality in the UK? So one reason for the success in the UK could be that it's been linked with grants. So um, universities have to have at least a silver award from SWAN in order to get one particular pot of biomedical funding. What are some examples of the positive influence Athena Swan has had on certain institutions? So at the University of Liverpool, between 2013 and 2016, the proportion of women that have been promoted to professor posts has increased from 28% to 50%. And likewise, their awards through Swan went from a bronze award to a silver award. What would be the challenges of uh, introducing this to American I mean, hopefully seeing similar kinds of results. Well, as far as I know right now, that funding incentive doesn't exist. So it's not clear to me that in order to get grants, you have to show that you've done well with the STEM equity achievement. Another challenge is going to be how to sort of assess these indicators of diversity. Uh, For example, is a university really the best judge of its own climate for diversity? Amy, thanks a lot for joining us. For more on those two news stories and all the latest science news, head over to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. But for more Nature Multimedia, make sure to subscribe to the Nature Video channel. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Our latest video is all about adorable bats bumping into things. Until next time, I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.